So uh, let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer before we start our Sunday school class. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for the honor and the privilege and the opportunity to be out in your house among our brothers and sisters, to be able to open up the words of life and study your word. Um, Lord, the, the, the saying comes to mind, those who uh, forget the past is doomed to repeat it. And one of the great things about the word of God is there's so much history uh, and there's so many pitfalls we see the, the, the patriarchs and the heroes of the word go through that uh, they help us in our daily walk, that we can kind of see those same pitfalls and not uh, fall into those things um, as they did. And so, Lord, help us as we learn the history and the culture and, and the narrative in the scriptures. Help us to know what your word is trying to say to us so we can apply it to our hearts and our lives and our minds. We can understand you, your word, and the plan of redemption that much better. Without the Old Testament, there would be no New Testament. Without the prophecies of the Old Testament, there would be no fulfillment in Messiah Yeshua. So we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity and the importance of learning uh, your word. So much of this is, is missed in uh, modern day churches today. They just want to skip right past it and get to the ooey gooey good stuff. But Lord, there's so much that's important uh, in every single section of your word, even the parts where people just want to dismiss because it's uh, uh, lineages or it's uh, genealogical records or uh, you know things like this. But Lord, you have a hidden meaning in there for us. You don't put anything in your word uh, that's not important or that's just filler information. Everything is for our benefit. So Lord, help us as we read your word today and study the life of Joseph to better make connections between uh, Joseph of the Old Testament and Yeshua of, of the New Testament and how their lives were alike and parallel and uh, how you miraculously moved and provided for Joseph in times of utter despair and desperation. So we thank you and praise you for that. Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, so Genesis chapter 39 is going to be our focus text for this morning for Sunday school class. Genesis chapter 39. But before we get into the text itself, I want to kind of give you a little background. Uh, of course, we're dealing with Egypt and the land of Egypt. And a lot of people don't know where the Egyptians came from. But the Egyptians came from Noah's son, Ham. And if you'll remember uh, the teaching about Noah and his sons is that Noah, uh, according to the apocryphal and pseudepigraphal literature, was mostly, most likely born an albino. He was born white in order for there to be uh, a lot of genetic um, anomalies and differences within the human race and the human color of the rainbow. And so uh, everybody before Noah was born black. So when Ham was born, he was born black, just like everybody else. But because Noah was an albino, he had that genetic disposition to have children of different color. Shem was brown, and he was the father of all of the uh, Arab and um, Hebrew peoples. Uh, Ham was black. He was the father of all the African peoples. And Japheth was born white, like his father. He was uh, the progenitor of all of the Caucasian and Asian uh, peoples. Uh, everybody who is, is light-skinned most likely comes from Japheth. So the original Egyptians come from the descendants of Ham through his son Canaan. And Canaan had all these other sons, and one of them was Mishpat. And Mishpat in the plural is Mishpatim. So in the Hebrew, Mishpat means Egypt, and Mishpatim means Egyptians. So the original Egyptians were black. And you'll see this in archaeology. There is a strange anomaly that occurs among ancient Egyptian artifacts. If you notice that the majority of the statues, their lips and noses are knocked off. Why is that? Because the white archaeologists of that day did not want to uh, promote that black people were once world rulers and rulers on the world stage. So they knocked off the noses and the lips of these statues to hide the Hamitic black features of the ancient Egyptians. But the Egyptians had a very uh, interesting uh, point in their history where they were taken over by the descendants of Shem. Uh, there was these Bedouins, these, um, these uh, Semitic Bedouins that took over and conquered the Egyptians. And history calls them the Hyksos. 
the Hyksos ruled Egypt for 200 years. Hick meaning king, Sos meaning shepherds. They were shepherd kings. So this is why Moses and Joseph were both confused uh, by other people as being Egyptian. Because if the Hamitic Egyptians were still in power at this time, there would have been a clear difference because the original Egyptians were black, and we know that the uh, Semitic peoples, those that are descended from Shem, the Arabs and the Jews are brown, more brown and lightly skinned in color. So there would have been an obvious difference, but because the Hyksos took over at this time, we see that uh, uh, Joseph ended up looking just like the Egyptians of his day, and he was indistinguishable. And even Moses, when we see that he escaped Pharaoh after it was discovered he killed a taskmaster, and he found himself by the well in Midian's territory, the daughter Zipporah said, this Egyptian saved us today uh, because he looked Egyptian. So the Hyksos ruled for 200 years. They were called Hyksos, the, uh, the shepherd kings. And for Joseph's brothers to mistake him for an Egyptian, the Hyksos must have ruled by then because until the Hyksos, Egyptians, as I said, were black. So that kind of gives us a background. So the Egyptians came from Ham through Canaan, through Canaan, one of Canaan's many sons, uh, Mishpat, and uh, the Hyksos took over, which were the descendants of Shem, which Shem uh, fathered, um, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and, and this sort. So we know Joseph was among that. So uh, the, the Egyptians at that time were Semitic. All right, so let's get on into it. Uh, Genesis chapter 39, verse 1, it says, we, we, we're back in the story of Joseph, because if you remember in Genesis 38, it was that odd little segue between 37 and 39. Chapter 38 dealt with Judah and Tamar. And so now we're back to Joseph's story. It says, now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. All right, so when it says that Joseph had been taken down into Egypt, uh, the, the, the part of Egypt that he was taken down to was in a valley. So almost all the time when, when it talks about somebody traveling to Egypt, it says they go down to Egypt because they had to descend into this valley, uh, this fertile plain, if you will, in order to be in Egypt. So it's always going down. Just as whenever you read about somebody going to Jerusalem, it always says they went up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is high and elevated. And so in order to go to the city of Jerusalem, you have to ascend, you have to travel up, no matter which direction you're coming from, north, south, east, or west. So you go up to Jerusalem and you go down into Egypt. But the rabbis has made a connection. When you go up to Jerusalem, you're drawing closer to God, so you're spiritually elevating yourself by going to Jerusalem, by going to the mountain of God at the Temple Mount. And when you descend into Egypt, you're not only physically going down into Egypt, spiritually you descend into Egypt as well. So it says when, when he was brought down into Egypt, that Hebrew word is, means to descend or to sink. So this is also symbolic of Joseph uh, sinking or descending down into depression, into despair, into hopelessness, which he likely felt uh, finding himself in this predicament as being a slave. He had all these dreams, these two dreams that he was going to be the ruler and the patriarch of his family and his family were going to serve him and bow down to him. And now what's become of those dreams? He finds himself at the polar opposite end of what these dreams represent. You know, he, he dreamt that he was going to be at the top of the ladder, and now he's at the bottom rung as a lowly, lowly slave. So when he went down into Egypt physically, he spiritually went down as well, because I'm sure uh, with any of us in that situation, we would be very fearful and depressed and in despair. So it says that he was bought by this Egyptian named Potiphar, and Potiphar means belonging to the sun god belonging to the sun god. So basically Potiphar, it says that he was the captain of the guards of Pharaoh. So if we want to put this in our modern day uh, understanding, basically uh, Potiphar was like the head of the president's secret service. So you know all these guys that dress in black and have the sunglasses and earpieces and they're always standing around the president or marching beside his motorcade and they're protecting him. Well, he was, the, he was like the captain the head of the, the secret service for Pharaoh. 
That's sort of what he was like. So it says that Potiphar bought um, Joseph from the Ishmaelites. Now, I think it's kind of ironic that the Ishmaelites coming from Ishmael were the ones that were sent away from Abraham uh, because when Abraham was weaned in Genesis 21, verses 8 through uh, 10, it says that uh, Ishmael was mocking, making fun of, humiliating Isaac. And legend says that he was shooting arrows at him because we know in Genesis 21, 20 that uh, um, uh, Ishmael became a, a, a master archer. He became uh, well-fitted with the uh, bow and arrow. And Ishmael knew what it meant for Joseph or uh, Isaac to be weaned. He knew what it meant uh, for Isaac to be the son of Abraham and Sarah. It meant that even though he was firstborn, he just got do knocked down to second place. So he was jealous because Isaac was taking all the love and attention as well as the birthright, the blessing, the inheritance away from Ishmael. So he was probably angry at this and uh, was making fun of and humiliate him. So Sarah said, he's not going to share with the, the inheritance of my son. Send the, the, the slave girl and her son away. So they went off into the desert and he became a desert dweller. And so years later, after Ishmael became a large nation and a large people, we find the Ishmaelites taking a descendant of Isaac into slavery. So it's kind of like a tables have turned, kind of a payback almost. Uh, it's ironic that we see that. So in verse 2, it says, so, well, let me just read verse 1 again. Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards, bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him there. Now, I'm not sure exactly how much that the Ishmaelites sold Potiphar, uh, uh, sold um, Joseph to Potiphar, but Potiphar was getting a great deal because Joseph was unlike any other slave that he encountered. He was beautiful, he was handsome, he was, he was strong, he was well-built. He didn't look like a slave. And if you remember, the Midianites had him first, and the extra-biblical and apocryphal literature says that the Midianites thought something was fishy because he didn't look like a slave. He looked like a noble-born. He didn't have any scars. His, none of his teeth were missing. He, you know, he was handsome. He was well-built. He was healthy. So they're like, eh, something's not right. Let's get rid of this guy. You know, he was, he's, was likely kidnapped. So they sold him to the Ishmaelites, but the Ishmaelites had no problem in selling uh, Joseph into slavery. So when Potiphar ran across Joseph, he says, no matter what the price is, it's going to be a good deal because this guy is, is well-built, he's well-spoken of, he's strong, he's handsome, um, he would fit well within my household. He would almost be like a trophy slave, uh, in other words. Uh, so uh, Potiphar bought him. And then it says in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. So even in our greatest times of despair, even when we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place and behind the eight ball, we can be assured that if we're a child of God, that God is with us. So the Lord was with Joseph. How do we know? What's the proof that the Lord was with Joseph? He became a successful man serving in the household of his Egyptian master. So despite the descent into despair, it says the Lord was with Joseph. The rabbis say that God went into slavery with Joseph as one day God would eventually go into exile with Judah when they went to Babylon, into Babylonian captivity. And so, so a lot of times we find ourselves in life in a very dark uh, situation where we feel like we're all alone and we feel like we're all by ourselves. And it reminds us, it reminds me anyway, of the poem of Footprints in the Sand where the guy had this dream that he was walking along the beach with the Lord and there were two sets of footprints. But at one point, there was only one set of footprints. And he's like, Lord, where did you go? You know, I, I see two sets of footprints only up to this point. And then at the hardest, most roughest time of my life, I only see one set of footprints. Where did you go? Where were you? And he says, oh, son, this was when I was carrying you. You weren't alone. You saw my footprints. You didn't see your own footprints in the sand. You saw mine because I was carrying you through that hard and rough situation. And that's what this reminds us of. Um, so it said, as a result, 
of the Lord being with Joseph, the result was he became a successful man. How did Joseph become a successful man? He made the best of his situation. And sometimes that's what we have to do. We find ourselves in situations we don't like, but we have to make the best of it. What good does it do to grumble and to complain and to, to, to kick against the pricks, as the scripture says, to, to uh, rebel and be in despair? We need to make the most out of a bad situation. When life gives you lemons, what do you do? You make lemonade, right? And so that's why Joseph was successful, because even though he didn't like the situation he was in, he was, he was uh, desperate in despair, depressed. He made the best of it by serving. And even though he was daddy's boy, he still had a good work ethic of being a hard worker, because uh, Jacob raised all of his sons to be hard workers. So through service and serving with excellence, giving 110%, Joseph was successful in the house of Potiphar, his master. And we know that the Apostle Paul wrote about giving our, our best, giving our all. No matter who we are, no matter who we're serving, no matter where we're at, we're to give our best in all things. So in Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul deals with this issue of serving with excellence. So in Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, it says, Slaves, slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in sincerity of your heart, as would the Messiah. And we see this is exactly what Joseph did. And he says, Do not only work while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Messiah. Do God's will from your heart. So the Apostle Paul is saying, just don't, just don't do your best when the master's watching, but when the master's not watching, doing your best. Because who you are when nobody watches, who you are when nobody sees, who you are behind closed doors is really who you are in real life because that, that displays your true character. So Paul says, don't, uh, don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Messiah. Do God's will from your heart, serving with a good attitude. You can be in a crappy situation, and an attitude can make all the difference. You know, having a good attitude. You just make yourself miserable when you have a bad attitude. And you make a lot of enemies that way. So serving with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing Whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, we also read in Colossians, another one of Paul's letters. Again, he dresses slaves and masters. In verse 22... Of chapter 3 of Colossians it says slaves obey your human masters in everything and I think we can make a disclaimer here obviously if your master is telling you to do something against God and against the scriptures then obviously you refuse so it says slaves obey your human masters in everything don't work only while being watched as people pleasers but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord I have a friend who sells t-shirts she works for a t-shirt company in New York. And it's not a job that, oh, I'm, I'm going to make this my lifetime career. You know, it's a stepping stone to other things. But it's not the most de desirable job, but it's making a living and an income for her family. And so she just come up with a saying, I sell t-shirts for Jesus. You know, because really, you know, the guy who runs this t-shirt company, he's not my real boss. Yeah, he, 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 he signs my paycheck. You know, and, and he supervises me. But my real boss is Jesus. I'm working to the Lord. I'm selling t-shirts for Jesus. And that has helped her cope with not such a glamorous job. And so that's a good thing here that says, whatever you do, do it from your heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Messiah. And then it says, for those wrongdoers will be paid back for, what, for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. And finally, uh, in regards to this subject, we have um, 
if I can find it here. In uh, Titus, take me a while to get my bearings here. So in Titus uh, chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating other, utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God, our Savior, and everything. So how you work, your, worth ec- your work ec- ethic reflects your religion. Your work ethic reflects your faith. If you're a good, hard worker, an honest hard worker, people are going to think more well of the religion or faith that you follow. And I think this is played out here in Titus. And then there's a whole letter written by the Apostle Paul that's all about slavery. It's about it's the book of Philemon or the letter of Philemon. And we see this, this slave who ran away from his master and ended up being in prison with Paul. Come to find out the guy who owns him, uh, Paul knows. And so uh, Onesimus gets saved. And then he's like, I'm going to send you back to your master with a letter from me. And you guys make peace because you're no longer master and slave. You're brothers in Christ. And so that's a really good book to uh, uh, talk about employer-employee relationship. So Joseph decided, just like Daniel decided, he was going to serve with excellence. It wasn't the best of situations for Daniel to be in Babylonian captivity. He didn't want to be there, but he made the best of it. He says, I want God to use me in this situation. And God can only use me if I have a good attitude. God can only use me if I'm doing my best and giving 110% and, and working for my master as if I was working for God himself. So Joseph's service was not only exemplary, but it was supernatural. So much so that Potiphar took notice. So verses 3 through 6 of Genesis 39 says this. When his master saw that the Lord, and it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which meant Potiphar was acknowledging Joseph's God. When when his master Potiphar saw that Joseph's God, Yahweh, we could say, was with him and that the Lord had made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From the time that he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's household because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself about anything except the food that he ate. So when, when he first purchased Joseph, it was probably like, you know, when you get employed at a new place, you have a, a three-month or 90-day trial period, whether they're going to keep you on or whether they're going to let you go. So Joseph probably started at the bottom of, of the rung of, of slave duty. He probably shoveled manure in the horse pens. He probably took out the trash. He probably peeled potatoes. He probably swept floors. He probably did the lowest, most menial jobs and tasks, but he did it with such excellence and with such efficiency as nobody ever before him done that, uh, that Potiphar took notice and he says, well, hey, he's proven himself. I'm going to make him my personal attendant. So you have these people in Hollywood who have these personal attendants, right? They follow them everywhere they go. They have the, the, their, their little day planner or calendar and they're always making appointments for the, the, the movie star, and they're always running errands for the movie star, picking up gifts and doing that, and, and always the go-between between the movie star and everybody else. Well, this is sort of like what uh, Joseph was to Potiphar. He was his personal attendant, was connected at the hip with Potiphar, went and done everything with Potiphar. He was his right-hand man, and he did such a good job with that that Potiphar uh, promoted him even further up the ladder to where he was the major domo, the executive steward of the estate. So if you remember Magnum PI, the original Magnum PI, and you remember Higgins. Now Higgins was the major domo of Robin Masters' estate. Robin Masters was this rich guy and uh, he, he was a novelist and he was never in the show, he was never around, he was always traveling and doing stuff. 
but he left Higgins in charge of his estate to run things, to run the household, to run the business while he was gone. And that's sort of like what Joseph was. He was the executive steward of the estate. He, he balanced the books. He, he managed the inventory. He, was, he managed the kitchen. He managed the household maids. He managed everything. He was in charge of everything. Anything business-wise that would come down the pike, he would be the first one to have to deal with it. So Potiphar didn't have to concern himself with anything regarding the running and management and stewardship of his household. The only thing he involved himself with, the only thing he, he had a say in or concerned himself with was what he was going to have for lunch. So the rabbis say that whenever Joseph was in service to, to Potiphar, Potiphar prospered. And whenever Joseph was absent from Potiphar, Potiphar didn't prosper. Thus, Potiphar concluded that his success was bound up somehow in Joseph. Joseph became Potiphar's good luck charm, if you will. So we see how the Lord blessed Joseph, even in this desperate of situations. Now, why would God allow this to happen to Joseph? Well, if you remember at the beginning of the story of Joseph, he was daddy's boy. He was daddy's favorite. He was a cocky, arrogant 17-year-old. And for in order for those dreams to be fulfilled where Joseph was, was patriarch and ruler over his family and his family was bowing down to him, he had to be taken down a few notches. He had to be humbled. And what's more humble, what's more humbling than for a pretty boy to have to take out the trash? What's more humbling uh, uh, for a, than a pretty boy having to shovel manure? You know, being a slave, he was used to having the run of the house. He was daddy's favorite. He never got spanked, never got in trouble. You know, and now all of a sudden he had to do everything that he was told or he would be punished. So he had to be humbled and, and taken down a few notches. And that's one of the reasons why God uh, allowed Joseph to go into slavery. Just like Moses having to tend sheep. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house. He was a prince of Egypt through adoption. So he knew how to rule uh, through a benevolent dictatorship as a pharaoh, but he didn't know how to be democratic. He didn't know how to, uh, uh, to rule a, a people with love and compassion until he became a shepherd. And that was, that was a humbling for Moses because he was raised to believe that shepherds were disgusting because Egyptians hated shepherds. It was a very low uh, class of people. It was the bottom rung of the social ladder. And here we find Moses in that situation where he asked to tend sheep for Midian. And through caring for sheep, God showed him the loving, compassionate side of leadership and humbled him. Humbled him so much that the scriptures say that Moses was the most humblest man on the face of the earth. And we see even how the, the being a shepherd also allowed David to be a good king as well. Okay, all right, uh, so rabbis say that literally, verse 6, where it says, he left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Rabbis say that literally, this means, as it says, that what he ate that uh, was symbolic, uh, symbolically it meant that Joseph had access to everything Potiphar had access to except his wife, and we find that in verse 9. So Potiphar gave Joseph the run of the house. He had access to everything that Potiphar had except for his food and except for his wife, basically. Uh, okay. All right, moving on to verse, 10, uh, verse 7. Well, let's go. Uh, there's a little part of verse 6 we didn't read. It says, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. We already kind of went over that at the beginning of this lesson. That's probably why Potiphar bought him as a slave, because was, he was in pristine mint condition, right off the assembly line, if you will. And it makes me wonder if Potiphar maybe even had a little inkling that something was fishy. He was, he was kind of a too-good-to-be-true type of slave. He had no scars on him or you know, no teeth missing or anything like that. He, he, he could speak you know, the languages fluently. Uh, we know that Joseph... Being a Hebrew, he spoke ancient Hebrew, but also living in the land of Canaan, he probably knew some Canaanite dialects. Uh, so he probably picked up Egyptian if he didn't know it already. He probably picked that up very, very fast. So it says, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. 
And verse 7, after some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. So he must have been a pretty darn good-looking slave, you know, servant, in order for the wife, Potiphar's wife, to take notice. Um, all right, the, one of the Jewish commentators called the Rambam says that, uh, said of Joseph, um, had been in the service of Potiphar for a year. So he, was, he moved up the ladder quite quickly from probably taking out trash and shoveling manure to being his personal assistant to being the major domo of the estate. So uh, it says by the time that uh, Potiphar's wife took notice of Joseph was uh, probably a year later. Okay. So, you know, Joseph by this time was 18 years old because he was 17 years old when his brother sold him into slavery. So a year later, he would be 18 years old. Um, strong, good-looking, strapping young lad. Jasher, the book of Jasher, chapter 44, verse 14, says that Joseph was 18 years old, a youth with beautiful eyes and a comely appearance, and like unto him was not in the whole land of Egypt. So basically, Jasher's saying he was the most good-looking guy, even though he was a slave, he was the best-looking guy in Egypt. And it's interesting that Jasher said he had beautiful eyes. Most everybody had brown eyes, but with that genetic disposition thrown in by Noah, he may have had green eyes, he may have had blue eyes. A lot of people you know, kind of say, well, I, you know, what, what's these pictures of Jesus with blue eyes? Jesus could have had blue eyes. He was a descendant not only of Noah, but he was a descendant of Leah, and Leah was an albino as well. So there was that genetic anomaly that blue eyes could pop up every now and again within the Jewish people. Dominantly, it was brown eyes, but maybe, Jewish, maybe Jesus did have blue eyes. We don't know. Maybe Joseph had blue eyes. We don't know. But it was interesting that Jasher mentions uh, the beauty of his eyes. Now, uh, it also says that Potiphar's wife was named... Uh, Zolicha. Zolicha was her name, according to extra biblical literature. Joseph was 18 years old, so you know that his hormones were in full swing. You know, not only to be in charge of the entire household, uh, maybe he could have a little side affair that nobody would know about with Potiphar's wife, uh, Zolicha, and that would probably give him more perks, more authority in the household get by with a lot more things. So I'm sure that the temptation was real. So a powerful woman um, attracted to him was a real temptation. But like Yeshua, he resisted. So we can almost kind of compare this, this situation with Potiphar's wife and the temptation that was present with Potiphar's wife to Jesus's temptation in the wilderness, because we know that Joseph and Jesus's life parallel each other and they're symbolica and mirror each other so much. So um, that's probably what, what, uh, um, probably what had happened. All right, so James 4.17 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Sometimes it just takes a resistance, a, a firmly saying no and walking away from the situation to be able to overcome that temptation. And that's what it says in James, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, talking about Jesus, Yeshua, he was tempted in all points as we are, yet with, without sin. So, you know, if Jesus was tempted in all points as we are without sin, if Joseph was tempted sexually, at some point Jesus was probably tempted sexually as well because he was 100% human, 100% man. He was tempted in all points as we are, but yet without, without sin. But he was also 100% deity, 100% God as well. Now, in Jasher, uh, chapter 44, verses 15 through 26, it gives this narrative of Zuleika trying to sweet-talk Joseph was very flattering of Joseph, was persistent, you know, just like, you know, just chipping away at his resolve day after day after day. She would flatter him. She would sweet talk him, give him easy jobs and easy tasks. She dressed in sexy clothing, very revealing clothing. Now, why do you think that Potiphar's wife was this way? Well, if Potiphar was such a big man in Pharaoh's household, or uh, Pharaoh's, yeah, household, he was the, 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 the captain of the guards, the secret service, he was probably away on missions a lot. He was probably on assignment a lot. He was probably rarely, if ever, at home. 
So you get that lonely housewife scenario where, the, where, where she gets no attention from her husband. The husband's never home. So she starts looking at these slaves as possible replacements or supplements to her husband who doesn't give her attention and is never home and never fulfills her needs uh, at all. So in Jasher chapter 44, it talks about how Zalika sweet-talked Joseph, dressed very scantily and in sexy clothing, how she bribed him with power and gifts to try to manipulate him. And then finally, when none of that worked, when she realized that Joseph wasn't going to give, was, was not going to be given into the sweet talk or given into the sexy clothing or giving into the bribes and the perks, she, she finally resorted to threats. If you don't sleep with me, if you don't do this, then you're going to have hell to pay. I'm going to make your life miserable. So either way, you're going to do what I want you to do. But it says in verse, uh, let's see, verse 8. But he, Joseph, refused. He said, look, he said to his master's wife. With me here, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in his house. And he has put all of that he owns under my authority. No one in the house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. So how could I do this immense evil, and how could I sin against God? So this Hebrew word where it says that he refused, this word refused in Hebrew is better translated firmly refused. He made no bones about it. He put his foot down. You know, he said, no, absolutely, unequivocally not. I don't care if you sweet talk me. I don't care if you bribe me. I don't care how you dress. I don't even care if you make threats against me. Because Joseph didn't want to break the trust. He did not want to break the trust of his master. His master trusted him with everything. His master uh, brought him up from the bottom of the rung to the very top of, of the ladder in his household and authority. So there was going to be no way that Joseph was going to ruin this. Potiphar had complete 100% trust, and the last thing he wanted to do was betray his master. Not only betray his master, but betray his God in heaven by, by giving in to this decadent evil sin. He's like, I, I, I can't sin against my master, and I certainly can't sin against my God. Uh, so if Joseph did all he could to stay away from Zalika, how did he end up with her? So it says in verse. Uh, verse 10, although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Now, one day he went into the house to do his work and none of the household servants were there. So according to the book of Jasher, uh, there was this, there was this uh, festival, this religious festival, this big party. It was kind of a national thing. And uh, everybody, including all the slaves, was enjoying the festivities. But because Joseph served Yahweh and wasn't you know, uh, uh, involved in worshiping or celebrating other gods or other pagan holidays or religion, he just kept working. He just kept with his duties. Now, Potiphar's wife was expected to go to this big festival, but she didn't because she's like, oh, I'm sick. I'm not feeling well. I need to stay home and rest. I need to stay home and get better. She, had, she knew that Joseph wasn't going to go. She knew that she was going to be alone with Joseph. She knew that this was her opportunity to strike. So, you know, who knows what Joseph was doing? Uh, it says in verse 11, now one day he went into, his went into the house to do his work. It could have been something like uh, balancing the books or, you know, uh, uh, you know, something to do with the everyday running of the household. But it was just something that was his responsibility. We don't know what it was, but he was minding his own business. And then all of a sudden, in verse 12, she grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. So that would be the equivalent of me. I'm wearing a suit and I have a suit jacket. So if Potiphar's wife, Zalika, came to me and grabbed on to, to my coat and said, sleep with me, I would weasel my way out of my jacket because I can take it off really easily and I would run away. Now, Joseph had a robe, and over the robe, he had a coat, just like he wore the coat of many colors that his brother stole and used as evidence of his death by, by ripping it up and staining it with goat blood. Well, you, you, know, you had a robe, 
and then you had an outer garment over that robe. And that's what it's talking about here. So Joseph didn't flee the house naked. He just didn't have his suit jacket on is basically what it was. Uh, so it says, she grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment, his outer garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. So basically, you know, usually it's the guy that tries to rape the woman. But in this case, it's the woman trying to rape the man. She assaulted Joseph and tried to rape him. But she, she flipped the script and turned the story. So he slipped out of his robe, just like a suit jacket, and he left. So continuing on with verse 13. When he saw that he had left his garment with her and that he ran outside, she called her household servants. Look, she said, my husband has brought a Hebrew man to make fools of us. He came to me so, so he could sleep with me, and I screamed as loud as I could. Rape, 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 right? She's playing the victim here. And, and, and the evidence is in her favor because she has his coat. Not only that, but, but who believes a slave? Who believes the word of a slave? She's the one who was the matriarch, the woman of the house. So, you know, she, uh, people were going to believe her before they were going to believe Joseph. So verse 15, when he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. So she put Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home. I imagine that she was holding that, wishing it was really Joseph, probably smelling that garment and, and remembering how Joseph smelled and how good-looking he, he is and, and, and how what could have happened never did happen. It was, the, it was the big fish that got away, so to speak. And we know that criminals will always keep some memento of their crime. Serial killers keep hair and teeth and jewelry and other things. So this rapist, she kept Joseph's coat kind of as a trophy, so to speak. So don't believe everything that you see. Not all evidence is evidence. Evidence could, at best could be circumstantial. So we see that, that Potiphar's wife had a fake story. She had false evidence. And she was the, the epitome of fake news. It all depends on how you spin it. There's a, there's a story that's often told in the Talmud and in, in Jewish literature about two, man, two men walking into a house and only one coming out. And the one who came out had blood all over his clothes and a knife in his hand. And lo and behold, the, 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 the guy he went in there with is dead. So obviously, the conclusion you're going to come to is that guy killed him. But the rabbis say, how do we know that to be true? Did anybody see this man kill the other man? How do we know that somebody wasn't already hiding inside? How do we know that somebody didn't sneak in through a window or through the basement or through the chimney or through a back door? Maybe this guy had the knife because he was trying to defend both of them. And maybe the blood is, is, you know, and then the blood was the result of being defensive. So you can't put this man to death because you absolutely have no proof, definitive proof. And even though there was no definitive proof that Joseph tried to rape Zalika, Potiphar's wife, that's what was believed, and that was the story. Just because Potiphar's wife had Joseph's coat in his hand. All right, now, in verse 14, it's funny that she says, she called her household servants, look, my husband brought a Hebrew man to make fun of us all. Um, he came to me so he could sleep with me, and I screamed as loud as I could. She feigned prejudice to hide her true feelings. She feigned prejudice against Hebrews to hide her true feelings that she was really lusting after Joseph. All right, now, moving on to verse 19. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, these are the things your slave did to me. He was furious. And he had him thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. Rashi, another Jewish commentator, says that Zalika gave uh, supposed graphic details about the assault, which Potiphar uh, you, gave this knee-jerk reaction to. Uh, okay. Now, it, it, now uh, the rabbis, as well as the extra-biblical literature of the book of Jasher and other things like this, Potiphar suspected his wife was unfaithful, 
But because he was so high up in the Pharaoh's government and Pharaoh's household, and because he was such high society, he had to save face. He couldn't say, oh, my wife's a, a, you know, you know, a floozy. That would look bad on him. It would not only look bad on him, but look bad on his children. So he couldn't face that societal ridicule. So Potiphar did suspect uh, Zalika's unfaithfulness, but when she gave graphic details, it got him. It, it just initially got him mad. It was that knee-jerk reaction, which anybody you know would have. So Legends of the Bible says that Potiphar says, "I know you are not guilty of this vile crime." He says this to Joseph, according to Legends of the Bible. I know you are not guilty of this vile crime, but I must have you detained, lest a taint cling to my children. Now it's interesting that it says that he had him thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in the prison. Potiphar was the captain of the guards, the captain of the secret service. It's also said and believed by the rabbis that he ran the prison, that he was kind of the director of the prison. So he wanted to have Joseph close to him. It's not like he threw him in the dungeon and forgot about him. Potiphar probably saw him quite often because, you know, this, this prison was likely in or near Potiphar's own compound because he was the captain of Pharaoh's guards. Okay. Now, this, this, this Potiphar, according to legend, believing that Joseph was innocent, this is sort of like Pilate and Yeshua. Pilate wanted... Uh, you know, wanted to free Yeshua, and he believed that Yeshua was innocent. He that he he didn't anything he didn't do anything that was guilty of of the of of, of crucifixion, and we see that in Mark fifteen fifteen. So, um, but yet Potiphar was kind of behind the eight ball. If he released Yeshua, he would fall out of favor with the the Roman uh, government that was above him you know, Caesar or what have you, because Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews, and they pointed that out to him. So even though he believed Yeshua was harmless and innocent, he had to kind of put forth a show so that he would stay in favor with not only the Jewish people, but with the Roman government. So Pilate had Jesus flogged. And hopefully he was thinking, well, as long as I have him flogged, maybe they won't ask for crucifixion. Maybe that's the worst that will happen to him. So in Jasher 44, verse 62, it says, Potiphar had Joseph flogged prior to imprisonment. So even the legends of Scripture, or the legends of the Bible, match up with what happened with Jesus. So even in the legends that's not in the canonical Scriptures, Joseph was flogged, Jesus was flogged. So I think that was kind of interesting as well. Uh, uh, Potiphar believe, or uh, uh, Pilate believed uh, Yeshua was innocent. Potiphar believed Joseph was innocent. All right. Now, Joseph was found innocent if we read Jasher chapter 44, verses 70 through 75. And so Jesus, Yeshua, was found innocent if we, if we read Luke chapter 23, verse 22. So Joseph was imprisoned and counted as a transgressor, transgressor. So Yeshua was also counted as a transgressor because he was crucified with two robbers, two prisoners, right? So we see those connections there. Now, Jasher goes into another temptation in the wilderness scenario because it says that in Jasher chapter 44, verses 77 through 80, that Zalika, Potiphar's wife, went almost daily to Joseph in prison to make fun of him and to taunt him and to say, hey, you could have all avoided this if you just slept with me. So it was just like not only had the knife been plunged into Joseph, it was being twisted. Joseph was in prison for 12 years. According to the rabbis, according to the commentator Rashi, 10 years for tattletailing on his brothers when they were shepherding the flock, and two years for depending upon the cupbearer to get him out of prison and not the Lord. So Joseph got out when he was 30 years old. 18 plus 12 equals 30. So he was 30 years old when he got out of prison. 30 years old when he rose to being viceroy or prime minister of Egypt. How old was Jesus when he began his ministry? 30 years old. There you go. All right, so let's close this out. 
with uh, verses uh, 21 through 23. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden. So, you know, it's like he's a slave. What could be worse? Well, he went from the frying pan into the fire when he went into prison. That's how worse it could get. Could it get any worse? Oh, yes, and it did. He was not only a slave, but now he was a prisoner. But the Lord was with Joseph, just as he was with Joseph as a slave with Potiphar. He was with Joseph as a prisoner under the warden. Verse 22, the warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority. So Joseph was like the head trustee. I ministered in prison, and the prisoners who had good behavior, proven themselves trustworthy and true, they usually wore a different uniform than the rest of the prisoners, and usually it said trustee on the back. And they had, they had privileges and access that regular prisoners didn't have. So just as Joseph had the run of Potiphar's estate, Joseph had the run of the prison. He could probably literally walk out if he wanted to. Now, you know what? There are, there are accounts of believers who have been persecuted. You know, even in England, when if you didn't follow the state religion or the religion of the king and queen, and you didn't practice your Christianity the way they did, you could be put in prison. And there were a lot of saints that were imprisoned, and I can't remember the guy's name, but one of these saints gained the trust so much of the prison guards and the wardens that he was let out during the day because they knew he was going to come back at night. <laughs> That's kind of like what the situation Joseph was in. The warden put all the prisoners who were in prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and the Lord made him successful in everything that he did. So Joseph becomes head trustee, the right-hand man of the warden, similar to how he was the right-hand man of Potiphar himself. And wow, we made it through the entire chapter this week. That's pretty amazing. So that's chapter 39. Next week, we'll go into chapter 40. So let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Lord, we want to thank you for allowing us to move through this chapter fairly quickly. Usually, we have to break it up over a couple weeks, but we went through really fast. And Lord, help us to retain and to recall the things that we've studied, not only to retain and to recall them, but to understand them so we can make them applicable to our lives and our hearts and our minds. Forgive us of all of our sins and everything in where we failed you. We thank you for everything you've done for us and for all your many blessings for what you have done, for what you are doing right now, and for what you will be doing. Lord, have your will and your way in our hearts and our lives and our minds. We love you and we praise you and we ask these things and give thanks in Yeshua's name. Amen.